really appreciate and admire that you're here at 7 a.m. on a Saturday. I got here on Thursday and was committed to staying on East Coast time, and by Friday that was you know long lost uh, no possibility. So uh, I understand also that with you know great Las Vegas sounds outside your uh, windows, that uh, in my case with music uh, until 4 a.m. and my alarm going off at 5 a.m., we might not be fully well rested, but the fact that you're here at 7 a.m. on a Saturday after having already uh, committed a, in nearly a week to be here is uh, very impressive, and uh, I really uh, do admire your commitment to providing the best possible uh, care to your patients. Uh, were there any of you who were in the session that I uh, presented yesterday related to prescribing? Okay, good. That's uh, good to know, and I... I uh, want to let you know that there are a number of common themes that I'll touch on. Uh, today's presentation is more policy-focused, but I do want to translate uh, what is going on at the federal and state level to you as it affects your day-to-day -day practice. So you might hear some repetition on the things that I really care most about and think are most relevant to you, but I do want to uh, sort of change it up and take a different approach, given that we'll be talking about this more from the policy perspective and its impact on your practice. Uh, in terms of disclosures, I'm with DCBA Law and Policy, a firm in Washington, D.C. that provides professional services to healthcare companies. That includes uh, some of the members of the pharmaceutical industry and laboratories. We also manage a couple of nonprofits, uh, one of which is, is focusing on reducing prescription drug abuse. And that organization also uh, receives funding from the healthcare industry. Uh, and uh, the information on its funders is available online at clad.org, C-L-A-A-D.org. So what I would like to do today is to discuss uh, the impact of the federal prescribing guidelines on your practice, uh, what that means in terms of your day-to-day -day efforts to get paid, what it means in terms of your efforts to uh, address the likelihood of professional liability of a civil or criminal um, uh, type and what you can do to make sure that you consider guidelines but not be restricted by guidelines, whether they be federal or otherwise. I wanted to describe some of the things that are happening at the state and federal levels that will affect you that you should be alert to stay up to date on and in some instances adjust your practices to reflect that we are in a fast-changing environment and the expectations of people who practice in pain management are also rapidly changing. And then uh, make sure that you're aware that uh, you as individuals who are on the front lines of treating individuals with pain disorders as well as managing the risks of all that goes along with uh, pain including oftentimes co-occurring mental health or substance use disorders, the physical conditions and the safer prescribing of controlled medications, that when the time comes for anyone to influence policy, that you need to be front and center in those discussions because who else is more qualified to inform and influence a policymaker who is probably a citizen legislator like you know, a carpet salesman or you know, someone who practices in a completely different field um, you should be the one who is influencing what that individual is doing in the legislature. You should be also uh, using your experience to uh, convince regulators, whether they be federal or state, as to what is best, not just for the public health, but also for the patients and uh, for the practitioners who also have rights that must be considered. And I want to talk on, about some of those things uh, that I am concerned about in terms of the, the rights of patients and providers today.
So we'll touch on the CDC guideline, uh, efforts to require prescriber education, uh, opioid-related legislation at the federal level, uh, and how what is going on at the federal level largely related, related to opioid use disorder prevention uh, and enforcement actually does have a significant beneficial impact on the practitioners of pain management. A lot of times we think that, well, everything is you know, going on that is uh, taking an approach that comes from the opioid use disorder perspective, and they're not considering the perspective of the individuals who have pain or other conditions that require controlled medications. Well, actually, what we see going on at the federal level will be beneficial to you, and I'll explain why that is. We'll talk about the buprenorphine patient limit and two federal efforts to uh, increase access to buprenorphine for opioid use disorders, and again, how that's relevant to people who practice in pain, especially as it relates to state efforts to control the opioid abuse epidemic and how you're going to have to adjust and you might need to shift some of your authorities to practice to the opioid use disorder side, whether or not that is currently an area in which you practice. We'll talk about prescription monitoring programs and that's where I have some of the concerns related to the privacy of patients as well as providers and what you can do to better inform your policymakers. And then concerns also about the inability of uh, individuals who need care to access the treatments that are medically necessary, the role of the illicit drug supply naloxone, and then, again, a call to action for you to be engaged in policymaking because no one's more qualified to help inform the legislators and regulators. So related to the CDC guideline, I know that you've had numerous opportunities to hear about the guidelines in full session uh, and that... I'm just going to touch on these for one slide, but they are going to really uh, impact what you do because you have to give consideration to them. The reason I say that is no matter how controversial these CDC guidelines are in the way that they were developed, there is an understanding in the law that if there is a guideline, you can be held accountable for not having taken it into consideration. So, for example, with states that are oftentimes enacting voluntary guidelines, just like this is a voluntary guideline that is recommended by the CDC. Some of the states are now being pushed to adopt this guideline and make it mandatory. Others might refer to it and make it sort of just a recommendation. But your medical board or your licensing board will take into consideration whether you are compliant with the recommendations set forth in guidelines of this nature if it is ever called to assess whether or not you have a right to continue practicing your profession, right? And so as much as you don't necessarily agree with everything in the guideline, what it does make sense for you to do is to go through it, identify the things that you do that you're adherent with in your own practices, and where there's an area where your practice diverges based on what you've learned here, what you've learned in your other training and years of experience, Find the documentation, find the rationale for why you are doing something differently and document that right? because you need to have documentation as to why it is that you're doing something that's different from what is recommended by CDC or the other guidelines that are out there. And in some instances, it's pretty easy because of the low quality evidence and because of the way that the CDC guideline was pushed through very aggressively in short order you know that there are inconsistencies with what is uh, more legitimate and credible 
resources out there, like, for example, the labels of FDA-approved medications. And so if you know, for example, that the CDC guideline recommends a morphine milligram equivalent dose that's not even a therapeutic uh, dose according to the label of a medication, you can cite the label, and you're better off doing that from a practice perspective anyway, because there's no point in prescribing any sort of uh, medication that doesn't even reach the therapeutic dose to an individual that's just setting the individual up for misuse or abuse or diversion. So these are the types of ways that you can check off what you know are your best practices that are covered in the CDC guideline. And my uh, slides from yesterday uh, included a couple of slides that had sort of what I think are pretty mainstream best practices that are included in the CDC guideline that you're likely already doing. And then those areas where you've learned here or where you, when you read the guideline, you know that your practice is different. Just be sure to justify each time in your medical record that you are doing something differently because you've got the rationale to do it, whether that be in the literature, whether that be by your experience, the unique medical need of the individual. Uh, because then, you know, if it's ever necessary for you to account for your decisions, uh, you have what is something credible within the standard of care that you can point to that is probably more credible than the CDC guideline. So uh, all of this, of course, reinforcing the notion that healthcare must be individualized and guidelines can't be adhered to in every single scenario because then, again, you do wind up doing things that are completely inconsistent with the standard of care when you deal with the unique and special circumstances of uh, uh, individuals uh, who don't fit in to the normal expectation of what would be uh, the CDC's guideline for uh, primary care treatment of pain. Uh, again, documentation, of course, is key no matter what uh, you are uh, uh, relying on for your medical decisions. Mandatory prescriber education is something that also in policy is coming up and states are implementing these requirements as they relate to pain management, but also more broadly as they relate to the prescribing of opioid medications, uh, not just for pain, uh, as the, the, the prescribing of controlled medications more broadly, then interventions and referrals to treatment as well. And those states that are doing uh, the best uh, in terms of tying the obligation to become educated to your right to prescribe controlled medications as I discussed yesterday, when you're dealing with controlled medications, you have, by definition, higher risk. They're controlled because they carry a greater likelihood for abuse and harm related to you know, their, their powerful nature. In the law, whenever there is a greater risk, you always have a greater duty. That greater duty, obviously you recognize, right, can be met by getting education and how to manage the risks of, con of prescribing controlled medications. That's why you're here at 7 a.m. on a Saturday after what could have been a late night in Las Vegas on Friday night, right? You're meeting that obligation. There's no reason why your peers who want to do what you do or attempt to do what you do should not be required to do so also with education and eventual experience to rely on, right? If otherwise, these people continue to prescribe controlled medications in a way that is not informed by education and experience and it does not include best practices like those that you learn here, 
they're just undermining the work that you do. They're just increasing the scrutiny on what you do as legitimate practice. Right? And so these sorts of state laws are actually helping to sort between people like you who are already voluntarily spending a week at a time getting how many hours of continuing education and those who want to try to do what you do without even putting in the effort, right? And they're putting patients at risk by not knowing what the unique uh, aspects of each particular medication might be or what the unique needs of certain patient types uh, would be. So the federal notion of prescriber education uh, sort of was killed about four or five years ago. Um, CLAD, the organization that I referred to that um, we manage, recommended back in 2011 that uh, prescriber education be mandatory at the federal level and be tied to controlled substance registration. So in order to get your DEA registration to prescribe controlled medications, you have to prove that through your state licensing system, you got education that's relevant to the risks and the precautions that must be taken when you prescribe these particular medications. Well, the AMA pretty much killed it, right? And so we shifted our efforts to the state. Well, just now, uh, I guess recently this year, the uh, AMA suggested that it's open to considering a prescriber education mandate that would be tied to uh, a controlled substance prescribing. I'll have leave time for questions at the end, so if, if you have any uh, questions, feel free to note them down, and I, I will do my best to leave 10 to 15 minutes at the end. Uh, so related to uh, the, the, the idea of uh, federal education mandate, it's not anything that you all need to worry about, because if you're getting credit for this type of education that you're doing here at Pain Week it, through your state licensing system, that, under any proposal that I'm aware of related to federal controlled prescriber education, would apply to your requ requirements that would be imposed at a federal level. And uh, the you know, basic reason for that is that the states regulate the practice of medicine and the content that would be acceptable, and neither HHS at the federal level nor the DEA at the federal level would want to get involved in what you know, that sort of content is certainly don't want DEA agents dictating what you're getting for your medical education. So there would be a reliance on the state education system so that what you're doing to get credits for professional uh, education would count. So this is something that makes sense for you all who are diligent in your practices to support, again, to sort out those negligent or even worse, the intentional bad actors from the good ones who are doing things right those negligent ones who are making things more difficult for you all who are trying to, to um, help people in a way that's responsible and protects yourselves as well. The training, of course, needs to cover more than just opioid analgesics for the treatment of pain. Right? Uh, there's a heavy focus now at the state level on opioid analgesics, and we're seeing that that was short-sighted because now opioids for opioid use disorder are being diverted and abused in the way that Pain, uh, the uh, pain pills were diverted and abused in states like Florida in the height of the pill mill uh, crisis in those states. But additionally, we know that just this past week or two, the FDA issued new labeling requirements related to benzodiazepines, other controlled medications, that the risks associated with overdose when combining benzodiazepines with opioid cough medications or with opioid analgesics are greater and therefore must appeal in the labels of those three products. We also know that stimulants are a source of abuse 
uh, diversion, kids are bullied for their stimulant medications. All of this supports a culture, uh, culture of medication abuse that then can relatively quickly transfer to illicit substance use, including heroin injection uh, and the related overdoses. So address the risks of all of these controlled medications identically, teach people how to prescribe any controlled medication properly, and then you, you know, are not piecemeal approaching policy in a way that goes by class of medication versus by risk according to the controlled substance scheduling of the medication. Obviously, any training needs to include interventions and referrals to treatment. So you can see that uh, there are some really good resources online. If you're interested in knowing what's going on in your state related to mandatory prescriber education or what's happening with prescription monitoring programs or naloxone laws, the National Alliance for Model State Drug Laws, NAMSDL.org, has really good resources where they give summaries and in some cases citations to your state laws so that you know what is happening in your state related to these sorts of uh, drug-related requirements. So I do recommend that if you ever get uh, some time on another Saturday uh, to put some effort into learning what's happening related to your profession in your state, National Alliance for Model State Drug Laws is a really good resource for you. Uh, here's one that uh, requires a physical examination uh, and SUD, substance use disorder assessment, prior to prescribing controlled medications. Uh, seems pretty straightforward, consistent with uh, what we're seeing in pretty much all of the recommendations and guidelines that are coming out, but some states are actually codifying uh, these sorts of requirements in law. And then a written treatment plan, and this is something that I, I discussed yesterday. Written treatment plan for the treatment of chronic pain requires a decent amount of effort, right? Because you have to state in a very individualized uh, manner what the individual's uh, medical needs are, what the unique circumstances and conditions are, how you're going to provide treatment and what the goal of that treatment is, and then continually update if there's any improvement or if there's uh, any backsliding or any adverse event, you've got to update that. So this is a big effort, and it makes sense for you to create uh, some templates and use some, uh, identify some resources that can, you can use in your practice to meet these sorts of obligations because even if your state is not mandating these sorts of efforts related to written treatment plans, they are increasingly a part of the standard of care regardless. Uh, and so this is something that if you are not already doing, you really should do not just for opioids, for pain, but also for any controlled medication that you are prescribing. Uh, so again, it's worth the effort to develop these resources so that as part of your practice, you've got the tools readily available to do this in a way that reflects the speed of your day and the pressures that you have in moving to meet the needs of all of your patients. At the federal level, there's been a lot going on, and there's this uh, notion that the uh, federal legislation has been largely related to opioid use disorder and trying to prevent that and uh, recognizing the needs of individuals who have addiction or overdose, but not necessarily paying a close attention to the people who have pain or the other conditions for which controlled medications are prescribed. But I want to uh, ask you to think of this in a very different way because I think that what has recently happened with the passage of CARA, which is the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act, it's actually really good for people like you who are diligent practitioners in pain management. Because CARA does put a lot of resources into 
policing and preventing and interventions and treatment, right? But if you look at the pressures that you're facing from a policy perspective, much of them are related to now the fact that there are illicit substances that are circulating in our communities that are meeting the demand for substances of abuse, right? There's this notion that prescription drug abuse is the problem, right? And that's partially created by the fact that federal statistics related to what's happening in our communities confuse what is, for example, a legitimate pharmaceutical fentanyl product with a narco-capitalist-driven fentanyl counterfeit illegal substance that has come from China through Mexico along your heroin networks, right? And so when those numbers are confused, there's extra pressure on the prescribers of opioid medications as though you're responsible. Well, you're not responsible for the counterfeit fentanyl and its supply in your community, right? You're not. Uh, and so you shouldn't be held to account for that with greater pressure on your practice. So if resources like those available now to empower states and communities to deal with the illicit supply through law enforcement efforts uh, can be useful at eliminating these counterfeit fentanyl and other uh, illicit products like heroin, that relieves some of the pressure on you given that people are thinking that you're the ones putting fentanyl on the streets in your community. Definitely not the case, right? Additionally, given that states and the federal government have been so aggressive at dealing with the opioid abuse epidemic now for almost a decade, and we are making progress, even though the statistics and the data collection at the federal level don't necessarily reflect that in an overt and direct way, we haven't adequately matched our supply reduction efforts on the prescription medication side with supply reduction efforts on the illicit substance side and, most importantly, the demand side, right? We haven't uh, matched the efforts to reduce the demand. So when you've got the reduction of prescription medications available for abuse combined with a demand that is either stagnant or increasing as opioid use disorders uh, you know, continue to progress, you have to have interventions and referrals to treatment to reduce the demand, to re uh, reflect the reduction in supply to see an actual overall benefit, and then shut down those illicit networks that are bringing in the counterfeit fentanyl and the heroin to your communities. So as much as CARA didn't do much to directly help people with pain and recognize that pain is also a very, very uh, prominent disorder in the United States, and we have to show the same amount of compassion for people with pain as well as for individuals with opioid use disorders and uh, who suffer from overdoses. Uh, this federal legislation, which puts effort into policing law and uh, the interventions and uh, treatment, is good for you. Now, let's just be very diligent to make sure that the policing is not directed even uh, you know, in a greater way to those of you who are prescribing controlled medications, but really gets to where we are as a nation, which is that we're on the right track at reducing the opioid abuse problem in the you know, healthcare system. There's more that we can do, but we are on the right track. You know, everything that we've recommended be done at the federal level is being done. We've got to really focus those police resources now on the illicit networks bringing in the counterfeit fentanyl and the heroin and the other uh, uh, fake illicit medications or illicit substances uh, posed as medications. 
And then in addressing the demand through interventions and referrals to treatment, some of the pressure will be relieved and uh, many of the people who are um, you know, suffering from overdoses uh, will be able to access treatment and get their lives back uh, through recovery. So at the federal level, the debate really has been over funding because this is one of the few areas where Congress has actually gotten something done. Right? This problem of overdose is so prominent that even Democrats and Republicans are able to come together and pass legislation in Congress, and the president was willing to sign it. That's uh, pretty amazing given our political climate. But now they're fighting over federal funding. The question is whether or not to pull away funding from other areas of health and safety to direct it toward what was authorized through CARA. And that's the same thing that we see that's still on CNN, uh, you know, even just this week, related to Zika funding, right? Republicans want to pull away money from Ebola. The threat is not quite as great right now. Democrats want new funding for Zika, and they're basically now doing nothing related to Zika because they can't agree on where the money is coming from. The same thing has been occurring here related to the opioid abuse problem, but uh, the good thing is that they were able to pass the authorizing legislation, and there are some funds that have been dedicated and then, you know, of course, the president uh, wants more. Having proposed uh, $1.1 billion for the problem in February, uh, we can trust that Republicans are not going to go that high. But the good thing is that uh, if, you know, if there uh, is funding available that can be pulled away, there are now the authorizations and programs in place to deal with the law enforcement interventions and treatment. And you should also know that CARA authorizes a new federal task force that will do a better job at what the CDC attempted to do. So the task force is intended to create federal practice recommendations related to the pain management. And it includes a broader array of individuals who would provide input, including representatives of patient communities. And then it has a greater balance in how it is, is comprised of experts. So it would include people who have experience in pain management, people who have experience with treating opioid use disorders. Uh, and then it uh, incorporates a number of viewpoints from various communities, tribal communities, for example. And so this uh, federal task force is going to be pieced together with individuals who meet the requirements set forth in the legislation for what community they represent. And will come up with recommendations that we can assume will be better rounded and more representative of the reality in a number of communities, as well as hopefully uh, rely on better evidence and not have inconsistencies like we see in the CDC guidelines. But in the meantime, you still have to know, understand the CDC guidelines, whether you're in primary care or in pain management, and you need to check off as many of those boxes as you can and then justify why you're not adhering to those and other prominent guidelines with reference to other sorts of literature and experience and education um, resources um, that will protect you in the event that you're called to account for what you're doing in your prescribing patterns. The buprenorphine patient limit, this is another area where there's been a lot going on in the uh, federal government, both at a legislative uh, and regulatory uh, level. So, as you likely know, for the treatment of opioid use disorder, there is a federal limit in place for how many treatments a practitioner, how many pa patients a practitioner may treat at any one time. 
Uh, and so that's a level of 30 or 100 under current law, or I guess the prior law now, given that uh, new rules have taken effect. So that if you were treating individuals for opioid use disorder with buprenorphine in your first year, initially you could only treat 30 patients, and then thereafter you could request federal permission to treat 100 patients for opioid use disorder using buprenorphine in an outpatient setting. Well, as part of the focus on uh, the opioid use disorder problem, the federal government has raised that limit through an HHS rule. So the number is now 275 for individuals who have certain qualifications. But what's most relevant now is that it also includes nurse practitioners and physician assistants because of the CARA legislation. So Congress acted to extend the authority to nurse practitioners and physician assistants. So you all uh, who are NPs and PAs are now authorized to prescribe buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid use disorder in your practice. And I was just speaking with uh, one of you this morning in the audience and said, well, I, you know, I'm in pain management. I don't think that that's going to be relevant to my practice. But given what we know that is occurring with CDC guidelines and other recommendations combined with state rules that are affecting pain management and the use of opioids for both pain and opioid use disorder, it might be necessary for you to get the qualifications and get the waiver from the federal government to prescribe buprenorphine for opioid use disorder. And here's why. If we know like states like Tennessee have laws in place that prevent you from prescribing buprenorphine off-label right, so that you couldn't prescribe a buprenorphine medication that's approved for pain to treat opioid use disorder, or you couldn't say that you're treating pain with a product that is approved for opioid use disorder, uh, then we know also that some insurers are cutting off treatment with opioids, or some states are uh, you know, directing their Medicaid systems to cut off treatment for uh, uh, individuals with uh, opioids after a certain period of time. They're being required to shift to non-opioid treatments. Then you can combine those two requirements uh, plus look at uh, the CDC guidelines and justify saying, well, if I'm forced to go off the opioid analgesics for the treatment of pain, and the CDC guidelines says that I may shift these individuals to an opioid maintenance program, then you could shift to buprenorphine in accordance with the CDC guidelines, but it would have to be buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid use disorder if you're in a state that requires that you prescribe on label, right? Because the pain medications are pretty low-dose medications that probably would not satisfy many of your patients who have a dependence on opioids for their management symptoms. So you would, by all those requirements, be required in order to comply with all of these various state and federal obligations to get your buprenorphine waiver to prescribe buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid use disorder in order to convert your patients who have pain, who've been on treatment long term, to buprenorphine to manage their pain and their dependence, right, instead of just shifting them to nothing and forcing them to the streets where they can go and get counterfeit fentanyl and heroin probably more easily than it is in some of these states to get the medications that they need for their legitimate medical conditions, 
right? So this actually could be relevant to you, depending on the state in which you live. So you should be aware, and given your obvious diligence by being here at Pain Week, especially 7 a.m. on a Saturday, it probably would not be difficult for you to qualify through the education and training requirements to get your waiver to prescribe buprenorphine, whether you're a physician or now an NP or PA, and it probably could be essential for you to be able to provide good care to your patients in a compassionate way that doesn't, doesn't force them off of a medication or onto the streets to seek illicit substances if some of these egregious policies that are currently in place remain in effect. So these are the requirements for a qualified practice setting that allow you uh, to go up to 275. These will be on the slides um, that are available on the Pain Week app. Another thing that you should be aware of that's going on, I know that uh, there's been a lot of information on abuse deterrent opioids here at Pain Week, um, and there is an effort to try to convert the market to the medications that are designed to be safer in some respects. There's also a lot of pushback against the abuse deterrent opioids because they don't yet prevent the overdose by taking too many medications, or they don't prevent overdose by... Uh, certain forms of abuse that are not covered by their labeling granted by the FDA. So they only deter certain forms of manipulation or certain forms of abuse and not all of the uh, adverse consequences of uh, the risks of opioids. Uh, but you know, given that where we are, where there's this sort of understanding that uh, if, you know, if, an, if an opioid is not going to do all these things, it's not worth prescribing, well, you know, that has brought us to a point where there really seems to be a stagnation in policy related to abuse deterrent opioids. And so what uh, we're working on with uh, some of the stakeholders and the patient groups as well as in industry is to try to break through this stalemate now so that we can see that there is a greater uptake of the medications that have slight, slightly improved safety profiles or slightly reduced risks with the idea that if you reduce any risk, it's a benefit, it's a good thing, and if these products actually take hold, then the companies will have the incentive and the resources to invest in medications that are safer in greater ways. So I met with a company yesterday that says that they have a concept for products and preliminary data that suggests that if you take 16 pills, that ultimately you would only get the effect of eight because there's sort of a 50% canceling out effect, right? So that's moving us in the direction of where we need to go. But these companies are not going to invest if we continue get, to get market signals that there's no point in investing in this sort of research and development to develop safer medications because if it's not perfect, it should not be used. So uh, there's state-level legislation that would encourage parity of coverage, for abuse deterrent opioids so that you could have the same level of coverage for an abuse deterrent as you would a non-abuse deterrent, reducing the barrier to access set by um, the insurers. Uh, still, there's a lot of difficulty, as you know, with any opioid and the prior authorizations and the difficulty of accessing the treatment. But uh, another thing that we're trying to work on related to um, abuse deterrent opioids is a deadline, a deadline for manufacturers to try to make their products safer. And so uh, federal legislation as well as probably a um, federal regulatory request related to in a deadline by which manufacturers, including the generic makers, have to convert their products uh, 
hopefully will be something that uh, will be pushed by uh, the Congress and that citizens will be able to convince uh, the FDA to do as well. But right now, it looks like we've plateaued in abuse deterrent opioids, and that's a big threat because if the market dies, then we're stuck with these products that uh, don't need to ha carry as many of the risks and that there's hope for other sorts of products that would ultimately you know, prevent overdose uh, in its entirety. But we've got to get there through an incremental process, and, and right now there is concern that we're not going to. So these are uh, states that have passed abuse deterrent formulation parity of coverage or non-substitution without permission uh, bills. And there, of course, will be new efforts in 2017 related to trying to encourage the transition to these products and the coverage by insurance of these products at the state level. Prescription monitoring programs. This is an area that I'm sure that you're aware of uh, some fundamental breaches of privacy for both patients as well as providers. This is what I see in my practice where we know that the DEA is accessing prescription monitoring program in a way that's inconsistent with state law and state officials are allowing it, right? It's really expensive to be able to try to consider suing the federal government and the state government and there's a complete imbalance of power related to what's going on in the violation of the Fourth Amendment privacy rights of patients and providers and the violation of state law by law enforcement entities and public health entities that are collaborating with law enforcement entities to try to access this data for phishing purposes to try to figure out who to go after for the prescribing of controlled medications. So some states have really pushed back. Oregon deserves a lot of credit for pushing back against the DEA, but the DEA is defending having already lost in federal court uh, where Oregon said, no, you can't access our data with just an administrative subpoena with just your regulatory authority. You actually need to go to a court and you need to get a warrant to be able to access this data. They took it to court, federal district court sided with Oregon and now the DEA is appealing. The DEA is also now suing in Utah to try to get access to the data again without a warrant. There is no need for law enforcement to access prescription monitoring program data without a warrant in some sort of judicial oversight as is consistent with the federal Fourth Amendment. When these programs are optimized, the data is entered by mandate, right? the data is checked by mandate before first prescribing and periodically thereafter. Right? And if there's a problem that someone sees, then that problem can be referred to the public health authorities, or the public health authorities can have red flag alerts that let them know when there is some sort of behavior that's inconsistent with the large data trends, right? And then they can investigate that to determine whether this is a really qualified pain practitioner who has the greatest, most difficult uh, patients and is doing a really good job of managing these uh, hard cases, right? And say, you're fine. We're not going to send this to law enforcement. But if it's a rogue prescriber, they send it to law enforcement, and then there would be an you know, opportunity for law enforcement and cause for law enforcement to investigate and deal with the issue, right? But there, law enforcement should not be dipping in and trying to figure out what's happening with big data and determining that we're going to go after this person because it can't analyze whether or not what is occurring is consistent with best practices and with the standard of care. Only health authorities with proper education and experience can do that. So this is something that I feel really strongly about because in addition to what we see with the DEA, now insurers are getting access to this data. And insurers are for-profit companies that 
are out to maximize their profits, and we see that every single day in the way that they uh, run their businesses, right? They're, they've got a model on denying care, and they're using PMP data to deny care to maximize their profits. There's no need for insurance companies to access PMP data like states like Wisconsin are doing. Because if, a P, if, a, if an insurer wants to say PMP data checks are essential to coverage by our insurance company, they say in order to be covered, your service has to also include a PMP data check, right? So we're not going to provide coverage unless you also submit that you have checked the PMP data and there's no other prescription and there's no other concern that you're, that you're not aware of otherwise. And then when we get that information and verification, we'll provide coverage. But they, they know that you know, that's not the real reason why they're accessing this data. They want to use the big data manipulation to find reasons to be able to en masse deny access to care. So this is something that, uh, again, is, is whatever you think uh, politically about organizations like the ACLU, the ACLU is taking the lead in Oregon on that particular case. And then you know, it's up to individuals like you who understand these issues to stand up for the rights of patients and providers because you have a right to privacy of being able to make your prescribing decisions without the threat or fear that the DEA is going to come banging based on what your decision is. And the Oregon court, the district court in the Oregon case at the federal level acknowledged that right. Uh, and so you need to stand up for that right as well as that of your patients to be able to get the care that is medically appropriate without undue influence from law enforcement. So as you know, access to care is difficult in light of all that's going on and some of the confusion about where we are with uh, the opioid use disorder problems, confusion that what might be, for example, a counterfeit fentanyl is somehow caused by prescribers of legitimate fentanyl. Um, and with pharmacies cutting people off from their medications because they fear DEA scrutiny, this is something that is continuing to get worse, right? Tenova uh, is the provider in Tennessee that is stopping the use of opioids for the treatment of long-term chronic pain. And this is what I refer to when I'm talking about buprenorphine for opioid use disorder. If they are cut off from their chronic pain medication, you can't just send them to the streets. You can't just say, take ibuprofen, and you're going to be okay. They're dependent on these medications if they're long-term chronic pain treatment individuals, right? So you're going to need to do something, and that might include buprenorphine until we can get these laws changed and get legislators to realize this is completely inconsistent with best practices, standard of care, and is going to exacerbate the problem of illicit substance use and overdoses. Then obviously opioid use disorder has the same thing where people are seeing uh, the medications for the treatment of opioid use disorders as just heroin light or legal heroin and trying to deny access to those medications as well. And again, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Ohio, uh, you know, they're um, at the core of the opioid abuse epidemic, but also at, they're at the core of uh, taking the wrong steps by denying access to medications for those treatments. I've talked a great deal about the illicit drug supply, but you should note that even the FDA, CDC, and NIDA have acknowledged that the reason why we're seeing so many additional new overdoses related to heroin and also counter, counterfeit fentanyl is not necessarily because of prescription medication prescribing or opioid prescribing. It's actually because of the price, purity, and availability of these substances flowing through the narco-capitalist networks. And that, again, goes to what I started out discussing related to the need for 
interventions and referrals to treatment to reduce demand. Naloxone is a big area where there's been a great deal of focus both at the federal level as well as the uh, state level. But the one thing that I uh, want for all of you all, all of you to know, uh, of course, uh, you know better than I do, is that when someone is rescued with naloxone, that individual may get his or her breath back or heartbeat back, but the individual at that point is not getting a life back, right? If you know that the person has had a near-fatal overdose, that's the point where regardless of what might be in the medical record beforehand, there needs to be an intervention and treatment for that episode, at the very least, of the inappropriate use of the controlled substance, uh, whether it be a medication or illicit supply. And so naloxone programs need to be combined with warm handoff programs that immediately provide people access and perhaps even enable the care providers and the family members to learn about the overdose incident to activate the family and other community networks to help the individual. So this is something that uh, some states like Pennsylvania are doing really well at encouraging those warm handoffs. But the reality is someone who's not ready for treatment is going to be really hard to get into treatment. But we should at least have the systems in place so that what we saw with the uh, very untimely death of Prince, who had a non-fatal overdose, could have been referred to effective treatment, but instead went just a mere week and had another one and overdosed and died. That should not be occurring. He's just a very high-profile individual with a great life and tragic death. But this happening to people around the nation with you know, the overdoses that are not their first. Let's use the first one to refer people to treatment. So again, I just want to reiterate that if it's not you who are active in policymaking, it's going to be people who don't know or, in fact, have a, a viewpoint that's in complete opposition to what you know to be best, who are going to be making these decisions by informing policymakers or policymakers who are just relying on sort of knee-jerk reactions. So you've got to be engaged and encourage you to be very active through the resources and connections that you have through Pain Week and the organizations and individuals you meet here, as well as organizations like CLAD, the Center for Lawful Access and Abuse Deterrence. That website, again, is claad.org. And really highlight your credibility, your experience, your education to make a difference in policy. Because if it's not you, who will it be? Got references on the slides that are, again, available on the Pain Week app. And if you have any questions, feel free to ask them today or connect with me on LinkedIn, and I would uh, be very pleased to uh, be able to help in any way that I can. I really uh, very much appreciate your time today. Thank you for being here so early on a Saturday.